0: Welcome to Abbey Archives, a Redwall reread featuring one pagan and one Christian going over the series to see what age like fine strawberry wine and what age like milk. I'm Kit, I use she her pronouns. I'm Izzy, I use CC her pronouns. You can find us and content for the podcast, including art and links to other Redwall related things at Abbey Archives on Tumblr and Reddit. Today, we're reading the second half of the second book in Martin the Warrior, chapters 23 through 27. Content warnings are slavery, bodily harm, poison, intelligent creature eating another intelligent creature, which is Multiple not other intelligent creatures. Yeah. Which is not cannibalism. <laughs> no. Uh, birds. Bird. Savage tribe tropes. Again, we get a third flavor of this book. Yep
1: and claustrophobia well okay so it's it's claustrophobia with a fear of being buried alive
0: yeah so so there's that that extra spice there of you're you're trapped in a in a tight space with a bunch of other panicking creatures so big heads up there if you are although if If you you if you had issues
1: with the the episode where fucking uh uh daisy was like you know buried alive underground and John had to go save her from the Magnus archives, you will have a few issues with this, but not as badly.
0: I just remember the one that the one like Buried Alive, one that messed me up the worst, was a uh, CSI episode. They actually did that twice in CSI, if I remember correctly. Two of them got buried alive. Jesus. Yeah. And one of them, uh, I'm not even gonna go into it, it's just, yeah, they really bullied some of them. Um, um, (laughs) Alright. Okay. yeah, those are the content warnings.
1: Yep. There's probably a few others, but it's kind of similar from, like, earlier parts of the book as well. Like, mm-hmm. we're still in this situation. There's death still. Uh, near, um, strangulation. At near strangulation. Near um, strangulation.
0: I'm amazed that we get, uh, like, savage squirrels again. This is, like, the yeah. second or third time he's had squirrels be like the air quote
1: savage tribe it's weird because like it, it's it, the dichotomy between how brian portrays the squirrels is so weird because sometimes you get them like you know Triss where it feels very robin hood mm-hmm. and then there's like other times where you get these like wild squirrels and it's like what does that even fucking mean well i mean all right we're, we're getting a little ahead of ourselves little ahead of ourselves. Questions for us to consider as we go into this part of the book.
0: Yes. And speaking of, we open this next bit back with Martin and company being dragged towards the roasting pits. Remember. Not Martin
1: and company, just Martin.
0: No, they start pulling the other ones out too.
1: I thought it was just Martin. Because that's where it left off.
0: Yeah, because he started in, like, he fought the leader. The leader got pissed. And started dragging martin first because martin was already he'd already broken loose enough they start dragging him and then the other three start getting dragged as well martin's just in the lead though i'm double checking okay no it looks like it's just martin all right i swear the other three were getting dragged too but either way martin is fighting quite literally tooth and nail to no effect and then a loud odd cry cracks through the air the leader finally makes a noise hissing to give out a warning or orders
1: or both we don't get a language we just get lizard noises yeah hisses body language and like head gestures which is a language all on its own like i'm not going to say that's not a language but like the way that it is portrayed it's not makes broken it english seem- at least yeah, but it feels very much like Brian doesn't necessarily consider this a language, so it's not a civilized type vibe. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's it, the still... vibe I'm getting from it. Honestly, to me, though, I still kind of prefer this
0: to the broken English, almost. Yeah, so
1: it, it's it's a weird, like, the devil you know kind of thing. Yeah. So the four
0: are tied back to their stakes so tightly that they're face down in the earth and struggling to breathe. It doesn't help that vegetation is piled on top of them to hide them, as well as lizards pretending to nap on top of the plant beds. A great grey heron stalks into view. He is the warden, and he is a majestic creature. The dipper alerts him to where the four are being hidden, and he scatters the lizards and foliage with ease. The four are yeah, exposed. The dipper, like
1: the dipper like is with this massive heron, which, by the way, we fucking called it. <laughs> yes, we did. Um, and just like swoops down and just lands amongst the lizards that are piled on top of uh, of our 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 four heroes, and just is like twitters is like, they're over here. Hello, I love this little bird so much. And
0: I love the like, way that Like, I don't Martin... necessarily
1: enjoy how the bird is written, because there's some- we, we're we falling into sparrow territory a little bit, but- Although- And you bring that up later.
0: Later on, yeah, later on, like, he does kind of imply that, like, this bird isn't stupid or unable to talk, he's just young. Yeah. So it's like, this is a kid helping out, so it's like, it makes sense that he doesn't quite speak legibly, because the warden does but like yeah. the implication is is that dipper is kind of a kid but again like i have very complex feelings about rose in this section of the book we'll talk about that a little later but yeah. like i love how he introduces the warden because he's just depict he's you know he's described as being majestic huge like he walks in a stately yeah. manner
1: yeah like with other very large birds that we've seen in the past like the 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 birds are just massive like this is another we have this is another dragon essentially Mm -hmm. the warden is another dragon Mm -hmm. um like we've seen with i think we've had a heron in the past that was a rakatan
0: and he was more of like if he was a dragon he was the kind who guarded he was he guarded the ford that also had the um, uh pikes
1: yeah and we've had these big like majestic kind of like long necked birds we definitely get a lot more of the dragon vibes with the longer necked birds than we do with a lot of the like raptors mm-hmm. the raptor like it, it's interesting the the difference between certain kinds of birds and the way that brian portrays them mm-hmm. because we get some that feel like dragons like the swans this heron rakatan who is like a young feels kind of like a young dragon or like a a, a lindworm or something mm-hmm. um um, with the raptors, it feels less like they're dragons and just, it almost feels like the way a lot of stories portray, like, the Scottish, like, kings. Yeah, not, I like, was gonna the Seven say. Nations. That's the way it feels, a little bit is like, the Seven nation, the kings of the Seven Nations kind of vibe. Mm. They're warriors, they're, they're, they're not dragons in the same way.
0: They are wild and free but also noble leaders. Yeah. Okay. The four are exposed, still trying to escape their nooses. He snaps the vines with ease, then whispers a warning to Martin to stay still while he deals with the lizards. It is a silent, terrifying thing the heron does next. Stalking in measured paces around the lizards' home, he judges them harshly, looking to the captives, then jabbing his beak at the lizards in silent condemnation. Like he's, he's speaking in their silent language and like via Brian's code of like how he writes characters. We know the warden is an intelligent creature. And if not a good guy, he has rules. He has morals. And like the mention of him speaking in that clipped manner. He can speak he properly. Law. He is the law. <laughs> um. <laughs> then he goes to the leader, knocks them on their back And then eats them. Pallum, Rose, and Grum are horrified, but Martin reminds them the lizards had been planning to eat them. This is simple justice.
1: What he does is he the when he flips over the red frilled lizard, like it's a challenge. And the red frilled lizard like takes up the challenge, like goes to like attack. And then he's just like, nope, and eats him. Mm hmm. Because, like, the lizard knew he wasn't going to win this, but it's a challenge, and per the law, he has to accept it and at least try. Yeah.
0: Because it's
1: how it it appears.
0: And you know what this reminds me of? There is an Aesop's fable about frogs who want a king. Mm -hmm. And they are given a king who is, like, just a log or something along those lines. Like, the king is just a small, simple thing. And they're like, this isn't grand enough for us. If we're going to have a king, we want a king. So the gods send a heron. And the heron begins to eat the frogs. And they're like, this is not what we wanted. And they're like, you wanted a majestic king. You wanted a great leader. Now you've got one. Live with it. Mm
1: -hmm. Like,
0: if you won't accept a kind king, you will get a harsh king. You know? Yeah. So, yeah. Like, his whole, I am the law, he rules this marsh. It makes me think of that Aesop's fable.
1: It's possible that maybe that was some of the inspiration here. Because it does, you're right, it does feel like that. Mm Mm-hmm. Especially and, as we go forward and learn more about the warden. And not just that, but like the way Brian
0: depicts like this whole scene, like Martin isn't exactly wrong. The lizards didn't need to eat them. They're in a swamp. Mm. There are bugs. There are other like creatures that these lizards should enjoy eating. There's fish. There's fish. And yet they chose to eat creatures they didn't need to eat other intelligent creatures. And so the warden who, the warden doesn't have a choice. The warden is a heron. He has to eat bigger animals. He can't survive off of bugs. Like, yes, he can eat fish, but he also needs more. So him keeping the rules is partially, it's a necessary evil. And it's also partially, I think, in his mind, justifying what he has to do. Yeah. Which also, again, paints him as he is still, like, a good guy in that he has to eat until like bigger creatures
1: but yeah, and this his- is a harsh environment this is just how it works here mm-hmm. like uh, the the way that everything works may not be what our heroes are used to but like martin comes from a rough and like harsh environment as well mm-hmm. so like he even though he's like i'm not i I don't like this this is just How it needs to be to keep a balance, you know. And speaking of that, it's 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 (laughs) it's odd the way that. Sorry, it's just odd the way that Brian kind of balanced... like the the again a dichotomy between how Brian is portraying constructed societies like Redwall and the balance of these quote unquote natural societies. I don't know. He shows
0: he like every, if this is one of the sequences where he shows that he knows that there are creatures who have to live in a gray area, but he mm-hmm. can't just out and out say they're good guys. He yeah. has to, you know, kind of tamper it a bit, Tem- temper. Yeah. He has to temper it a bit. Yeah. So once he's done, he dismisses the lizards and returns to the captives, declaring his name and saying he was the law. He'd done what must be done. Martin doesn't protest instead bowing politely introducing them all saying they've been traveling to noonvale and could they please be given directions and you mentioned that like martin growing up in that harsh environment here he is being polite and courteous not out of fear but because he understands this is just a creature being a creature and Mm -hmm. he's in his territory and needs to show him the respect he needs and again like he doesn't hate the gannet for trying to eat the the baby he knew that she was just trying to feed her own children he doesn't hold a grudge because they're trying to eat for necessity it's not like it's not like with some of the other predators you've seen who eat for pleasure like with asmodius who would just kill yeah i was a about to larger. bring up asmodius <laughs> yeah it's like again we're getting that depiction of sometimes the predators are just predators and sometimes the predators are intentionally malicious the dragons the intelligent yeah. ones
1: yeah like some some of our dragons are quote unquote evil dragons and some of them are quote unquote good dragons but they're all still dragons Mm -hmm. you know they have to eat to live and what they eat is not necessarily savory to our protagonists Mm
0: -hmm. the dipper and rose sit together while the warden ponders martin's request he says he knows not of noonvale but has heard the name so they shall follow him and his law and he will lead them from his marshes But before they leave, he asks Pallum to put out the fire in the roasting pit. Grum steps up before Pallum can reply, saying he can do it. He quickly shovels dirt onto it, putting it out and pleasing the warden greatly. He compliments Grum, who humbly turns the compliments aside.
1: I love that we get more of this moles doing, like, good mole shit. He, like, just kicks, like, putting damp earth onto a fire... Helps put it out and smother any smoldering embers so that it doesn't catch And you don't get smoke. Yeah, you don't get smoke. You don't get stray sparks and embers that may cause a forest fire. It puts it out completely. This is why, for anybody who goes camping, don't just pour water on your fire. Dump dirt and sand onto it. This will put it out.
0: I just, I always think of that weird scene in Jurassic Park 2 where they see a fire at base camp and they're all freaking out over a fire at base camp. And it's just like this little teeny tiny campfire. And they're like, no, don't pour water on it. Water makes smoke billow. Use dirt. And they're all just like freaking out over this tiny campfire. And it's just like,
1: guys, it's like... Like they're tiny- right. It will make the smoke billow. But like yeah. if it's a small fire...
0: I love Jurassic Park too, but it is directed in a very weird way.
1: Yeah. I think it depends on like how many embers and Mm -hmm. like, uh, stuff like that is underneath the wood and how long the fire has been going. Because when you dump water on a fire that's been going for a while, it may be a small fire, but there's a lot of heat, Mm -hmm. which will cause a lot more smoke. Um, now I do want to say this might be the grayest space we've been in, in any of the books. Where Brian hasn't specifically been like, this is good or bad. It just is, right? Yeah. It's interesting. And I like this. And I wish that we'd, we'd seen more of this in the previous books. Agreed. Anyway, yeah, continue. I just wanted to get that thought out before I lost it.
0: Not heeding Grum's reply, the warden leads them out of camp, saying he will lead them to the mountain, but must stay in his swamp.
1: He only has, he only presides over the swamp. He is only the law in the marshland. Mm -hmm. He is not the law in the mountains. (laughs) Palm and Grum both make fun of
0: the rather quiet and stuffy warden. They start to mock him behind his back, but the big bird then turns and gives them a dark look. He threatens them. He will not be mocked. He is the law. The pair both snapped to attention and agreed with
1: him. I like that they're getting this, like, because they've made fun of multiple people up to this point. Like, to to some degree, some of it was warranted, like, with the rabbits, but it's still, like, they've made fun of people, so they're getting this, like, kind of karmic reaction of, like, don't mock me, I'm helping you. Mm-hmm, pretty much. They get called out on their, their nonsense. Yeah, um, and I I like that, like, and they listen. They don't just keep doing it, unlike what we're going to see going forward. Yeah martin and rose walk a little ways behind the dipper
0: hops next to rose when asked what his name is she says it will be named dipper for that is what he is and again this feels really weird because like dipper is they never ask dipper what his name is even though rose can communicate with him like what is and his the name? the warden can
1: communicate with him.
0: But even the warden calls him Dipper. So it's like, is Dipper literally just his name? Does, like, no one else in his family have a
1: name? It's very clear. Like, I don't... I, it's it's so odd because it, it feels like maybe he doesn't have a name and, like, birds are just called what they are. Besides the warden who got... A, like, he was given the name Warden, probably. Or chose
0: his name because he... Yeah. Yeah.
1: And, and, like, Dipper is just Dipper because he's a Dipper bird. Like, that's the type of bird that he is. And, like, all other Dipper birds are also called Dipper until they they choose a name or are given a name. There's some, like, societal and cultural stuff that we don't see concerning the swamp Yeah, that is interesting to muse on. But without having that kind of th- uh, putting that kind of thought back because we don't see it, just having this without any of that does feel very weird it, it we're getting into weird sparrow territory again with birds and it's like mm-hmm. brian can we not do this
0: so rose and martin both muse about where the mountain is or what it is but either way they will find out by following the warden for he knows this land very well martin smiles and whispers to rose because he is the law like, that's, that, that's kind of cute. That little part. Like, they're not mocking him in a malicious way. They're just, like, making light of a stressful situation. Like, we yeah, see this a very... couple times in this uh, section where, like, they go through a very traumatic event and then try to laugh it off
1: afterwards. Mm-hmm. Use, using kind of, like, darkish humor to help them, like, cope with what they're doing. And it's, it, it's very, like... You know, just coping with. That. I had another thought. I lost it like immediately,
0: so <laughs> it'll come back to you because I. It definitely comes up later. Um, the warden leads them through the dreary swamp until they reach a little hilly. I. How do you say? it?
1: Islet? Islet? I think it's islet. Okay. Like this is one of those words that I've never heard spoken. Same. And, I've always read. and in my brain, it's always been islet. But if it's an isle, it would be an islet, islet right? Yeah. So we're going to go with Islet, and I'm going to keep this in so people can understand our suffering. Um, Listen, when I was younger, I would pronounce Annihilation as Annihilation, Epitome (laughs) as Epitome. Listen, when you read at, like, an 11th grade level in the 5th grade, you don't know what words sound like. You just read them, and your brain is like, this is how it's pronounced. Same. We've talked about this before. Kit continues to get angry at me for Feli. (laughs) Ellie! so
0: they reach a little hilly islet it's getting too dark to carry on so he orders them to camp here and carry on tomorrow grub wants to make zoop but the warden vetoes it hard no fire he dislikes fire he also doesn't know what zoop is and he doesn't want it yep and it's like i don't blame him for not liking fire for a few reasons because one he's covered in flammable feathers Two, the swamp clearly has natural gases of some sort in it, and three, with all these dead plants fermenting, this place is basically a fire trap waiting to happen. Because people don't realize how flammable swamps actually yeah. are. Yeah, They're they think because fire. there's a lot of
1: water and it's wet. The thing is, is that this fire goes up into the treetops, and the treetops are less, way less wet than the ground is and it will spread fast through that dry timber and there's also this um, nice yummy gas caused by all the decomposing <laughs> foliage yep, yep. Uh, so if depending on uh like the like you know there's that hole in the middle of like siberia or whatever that's always on fire because yeah. they set fire to it to burn out the methane there's, and it
0: just keeps being on fire there's one of those in america too
1: yeah it's kind of like that with uh, swamps, like because of uh, the amount of like gases in the air, because of you know rotting and fermenting like plant matter and animals and things like that, like it can cause a fireball depending on how bad it is, or it'll set fire to the methane pockets that are under the muck or the peat.
0: Mm-hmm. Stocking off to catch frogs for supper, the rest enjoy another cold and slightly squashed meal, but it's still good.
1: I don't like. I know you said it earlier, calling the heron, like, a necessary evil, but I don't like how Martin is referring to the warden as a necessary evil in this moment. Because it's not evil what the warden is doing. And it 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 feels off. This is, like, the one moment out of this entire bit where Brian is making, like, a statement about what's happening yeah, that doesn't like he... feel...
0: He has to remind us that, uh ah, 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 don't be lulled, this is still a, an evil creature because it's eating other living creatures, Ta ta ta.
1: Yeah, it, it's because with the rest of this bit where it's like Martin is not judging the heron for what he's doing, this calling him a necessary evil feels judgmental in a way that just kind of feels off. But it does kind of fall in line with how Martin is in Mossflower. Mm-hmm. So it's like, a it's an odd thing. Martin is an interesting character because we have how we know he is in the future versus how he is in this book, which is in the past. And I, it's, I make comments on it a few times about like the differences between Martin in Mossflower and Martin here and how he's changed or things that he learned in this book that he carries going forward. And this kind of feels like one of those things, right? Mm-hmm. So it's—I don't currently have the brain power to fully like process my thoughts on it, and I may try and like do that later. But um, listeners, if you have thoughts on this kind of like Bryant writing Martin, like learning these things and taking them forward. And what you feel like he brings into Mossflower from this? Please let us know your thoughts. I want to hear them. I think this is an interesting discussion. So. Join our Discord. (laughs) Yes.
0: So Dipper certainly enjoys the meal, showering crumbs as he tries to tell them all enthusiastically. Such a kid thing to do. (laughs) Yeah. His singing is much better than his speaking, and the rest applaud his happy after-dinner whistling. Martin laments his horrible singing voice and urges Rose to sing a tune for them.
1: She happily obliges. Would you like to to read the song? Yes, I am the designated song reader. We have two of them. Yes. Back to back. Oh, happy is as happy does. Misery never useful was. And I am happy now because I'm with the ones I love. Sing fall lol low a larry lay. That probably sounds so much better in cadence. Mm-hmm. But I don't know the cadence of this song, so. <laughs> let the sun shine bright all day, so I'll go happy on my way, With the good ones that I love. Oh fie on you, O oh, great disgrace, look at that sad unhappy face. I'll not walk with you, not one pace, you're not the one I love. Sing Dumbledum and "Dairy Dee, you'll have to smile to come with me. Till happiness doth let you see, you're the one that I love. She sings a love song at, <laughs> after Martin requests for her to sing. <laughs> but And I'm just like, this is very adorable. Like, we're not getting a whole lot, because we know in the future Martin does not have a proper partner, right? Mm-hmm. So we don't get a whole lot of comphet between them, except for like little bits and pieces that are cute. Gentle to flirtations. The point where, yeah, this... I actually am, like, shipping them now because it's like, this is really cute, (laughs) these, like, little bits and things, but I want to know, like, what happens between them because Martin doesn't stay, right? Mm -hmm. I want, I, gimme. (laughs) Num, num, num. (laughs) Food for me. Grum praises her
0: saying how that one always made him feel like dancing. She asks him to dance, but it takes a mix of cajoling and bullying to actually get him to do it he sings a little ditty and dances joyfully.
1: Yeah, the the thing is, like, it's like, oh, I likes that on Miss Roser. All oh, this makes me feel like Darnson. And she's just like, oh, well, come on, sing old Grumchops." She, like, has so many cute nicknames for him. In this one, we've got, like, Grumchops, Grummy Face. It's so cute. They're such good old friends. You can feel it between them. Mm-hmm. Uh, Grum doesn't want to sing because he's like, oh, your papa always made fun of me and uh, he always laughed at me. And it's like, well, he's not here. Come on. And then he does. Because for moles, like any singing has to have dancing with it, which makes sense. I like that. I like that little bit of mole culture. Mm-hmm. Now, ground for war, powerful mole, scratch a tunnel, dig on all. Mightiest eater, so I'm tall, in all Iwer you am sure've seen him eatin' cake. Grandmum said, "For goodness' sake, I'll start the oven up to bake, and twelve tin cakes I'll make. If Grandfurry won, he made two. Ho, oh dearie me! I'm telling you, he made them twelve tin cakes right through. Then went asleep till summer, and when his summer sun did break, my old Grandfurry came awake. Good old beast, drinked all the lake and left the fishes sobbin'. Him in story, as I've told to you, I swears as every word be true. If in you think I told fibs to you, then go and ask you fishes. I really like that one. That... that, I like the way that Brian did this rhyme. I know there's a specific name for this kind of rhyme because the vast majority of the rhyming words are the same. Right? They have Mm -hmm. the same sounds. It's not every other like line like every like two lights like different words no we get a lot of like the ol sounds and the ache sounds right mm-hmm. and the oo sounds so we get like mole ol toll cake sake bake make to you through break awake like you true you so it's a lot of the same sounds i don't know what that's called i don't know enough about poetry to know what that type of rhyming scheme is specifically called, but it is very satisfying to read, and with the accents on this, was probably difficult to write. (laughs) So kudos to Brian for that one. He's very good at writing little ditties. So, returning at the
0: end of the song, the warden says, Grum is good at digging, but terrible at singing. Rose is the best (laughs) by far. Now it is time to sleep. And here's a little bit where I say that, like, we get the big implication that Dipper is just a kid. Because the warden's just like, Dipper, go home to your nest. Go on. Go home. It's like, go home. Shoot. And then, yeah, like, we he, don't ever see Dipper again. Like, Dipper just disappears. We do not. Yep.
1: Yeah. He was just here for this little bit. He for, was the the deus ex burden for, for, for this little bit. And then Rose also, like,
0: Rose is, like, very weirdly portrayed in these last little bits as having, like, a motherly side where she'll take, like, any creature who isn't a mouse and treat it almost like a baby or a pet, even if they are very clearly, like, adults. It's very strange. I don't really
1: like it. Uh, What the warden says specifically is, Good at putting out fire, not at singing. Mouse Rose is the best singer. I know this. Sleep now. Dipper, you go back to your family nest. Just very clipped, very to the point. Like, he has his opinions. He's gonna tell you them. (laughs) And to him, they are fact.
0: Later that night, Martin awakens to two odd muffled noises a check on the warden reveals animals strangling the great bird he leaps into battle without hesitation yelling his name as a war cry and awakening his friends
1: yeah it's pointed out that this was happening for a while because the bird's struggles are very weak so it's like amazing that they managed to sleep through all of that because we know that Martin in particular tends to be a light sleeper yeah which is probably says something to the skill of the things Attacking the bird
0: <laughs> Yeah But we,
1: we don't know like it's just implied
0: that It's just like a many great writhing reptilian Form so yeah. But we will learn about that The next chapter this current New chapter focuses on Brome,
1: Who has a stroke of luck You know luck our and... dipshit son <laughs> Yeah
0: but he has a <laughs> stroke of luck And a stroke of genius As he spots a sea rat called Wulp ahead of him Wolpe had taken one of the javelins through the foot and is still limping along towards Marshank. Rome slips down to help the rat, introducing himself as Bucktail and chatting genially as he bandages the wounded rat's foot. He helps Wolpe limp back home with the grateful rat promising to remember his kindness.
1: How? Okay, I just, Brian, you worked as a dock worker, right? You worked on docks, you worked around ships, you worked around sailors. You know that sailors who have all been on a ship for a long-ass time, all know each other, right? I can say this as somebody who grew up in the Navy. If the ship is of average size, meaning, like, you know, not a big warship, but just, you know, a ship, everybody knows everybody, right? This is, like, the Sea Rats, like, yeah, there's a lot of them, but they all live on the same ship for long periods of time. They don't get new people in that often. They should all know each other. How in the hell does this happen? And I know why. I know why it happens. It's because vermin are stupid. That's the whole thing. Like, that's that's the very thin argument, is vermin are stupid. This is not how sailors work, Brian. And you know this, Brian... Oh, I hit my microphone. <laughs> you so- know this, Brian! <laughs> Sorry, I was hitting my book and accidentally hit my microphone <laughs> as I was hitting my book. It's so...
0: The two, despite, despite, you know, this fellow appearing out of nowhere, the two make it... I think my one defense would probably be is that Brian very clearly tries to make it evident that these, like the Corsairs, have no loyalty to each other. They've got no reason to make friends. These are creatures who don't make friendships. So showing that he wouldn't recognize a stranger... Even if, in theory, he is from his crew, is Brian further digging home that these are not friendly creatures? They don't know each other like the Redwallers do or the the woodland creatures.
1: I know. It just, it still doesn't make sense to me. Like, having grown up in the, like, seafaring background, like, it doesn't make sense to me that, like, a ship full of people could be like that. Like, I'm not saying that it's not impossible, but we get this with, like, every ship right hmm and it feels like this is too many ships for this to keep happening with i don't know it feels weird uh, and again we come back to like vermin are are stupid and are bad at existing and it's
0: <sighs> so the two make it to marshank by nightfall no one pays them any kind of attention Having too good of a time watching Battering and Clog have yet another go at each other, Battering mocking Clog for his failure to catch the squirrel maid, and Clog shooting back by implying Battering and his crew had gone soft. And like, I love that Battering is literally standing in a higher pose- position during this argument, like he's on the porch of his longhouse, looking down at Clog, who is just, of course, again stuffing his face with food. Mm-hmm. And, you know. Clog also points out that it was the slaves who had slain his beasts, not the squirrel maid, and he pities Barang when they when and if they ever decide to come back to the fortress. Battering questions why they'd bother to do that after escaping, and oh, by the way, how's his shipper floating going? Clog turns this jab right back around, asking how the empire and fort building had gone today, not so well, eh. In a temper now, Badring says Clog and his crew are no longer allowed to eat freely of the fortress's supplies. If they want it, they have to earn it. Clog hurls his tankard, saying he and his beasts are free not to be bossed by him. This good, this food is the least Badring owes
1: him for burning his ship. Bro. It's interesting to see the the like give and take between them, like though the way that uh like particularly this feels like a very like you know sea rat pirate thing the the way that they hold like favors and honor in this way it it's that versus, part like part of the game it's like a little chess match just mm-hmm. that push and pull seeing how yeah. far they can push the other yeah they have to make sure that they're still even right Because if one of them can get over on the other with one of these favors, then that's, you know, that's check. It's not checkmate, but it is check. So they have to make sure that they're still even. And at this point, they are still even, according to both of them. Yeah. Uh, it's just, it's interesting. Like, you make a comment a little bit later. It's like, I wish that we could just have this. Yeah. Between Badrang and Clog. And, like, I agree. An entire book of, like, if the heroes didn't leave and we had had a book with just the two plot lines of the slave escape and Badrang and Clog, I think that that would have made for a more interesting book.
0: It really would have. I would have enjoyed it.
1: Yeah. Like, I'm enjoying... The, the like trying to get to Noonvale as much as I can but there's a lot of stuff with that particular plot line which is ostensibly the A plot um, that I'm just like I'm not enjoying as much because that is the one where we're getting all of the Savage Tribe stuff right? The, the Savage Tribe I feel like it's weird that we get three
0: of those in this book and it's, it's in the
1: same plot
0: line yeah all of them focused on like Martin and Company, like if the, it, it's it's the thing of like Brian will write that it's easy to get to one place, but to get back to another place, it's suddenly a very hard journey. And he's literally just throwing them at them to slow them down. Like the implication yeah. is, is that Mer, like Rose and Grum just walked to Marshank and didn't have all these problems, but now they're taking and, yeah, a completely and that Brum different
1: also did yeah,
0: and now they're taking like a completely different excuse me, a completely
1: different, longer route back. So, of course, he's got to, like, In their
0: defense, they did
1: end up in the ocean and washed up somewhere unfamiliar.
0: Yes, but I thought the implication was that they were walking along the shore to get to Marshank. So why not just walk along the shore again?
1: I have no idea, honestly. Like, I don't... You would... Like, the way that Rose talks about this part of the country, like, you would think that she would know... If not everything necessarily, but at least like where places are, right? And like, let me flip to the front of the book to look at the map really quick. Um, because the maps are always useful. Like, we get, we see. Okay, yeah. So we've got. Badrang's scuppered ship. Okay, where is Marshank? Okay, there's Marshank. Wow, this is set up entirely differently than I thought it was. Okay. Okay, so I was thinking, and and correct me if I'm wrong that you also thought this, I thought that Marshank was, like, at the tip of a peninsula, right? No, I never thought that. See, I thought that. And I also thought it was on the western side. It's on the eastern side. Yeah,
0: I mean, like, I feel like the, I feel like the maps are drawn after the fact, so they're just, like, always a little odd.
1: Yeah, they ended up, so, they ended up, so there's Marshank. Let's see, where is Noonvale on here? Wow, yeah, no, they ended up way north. And Yeah, when the storm happened, they got washed way north. And they had to make their way south because, looking at this map, Noonvale is just to the west, mm-hmm. past the marshes of marsh like the marshes that are behind Marshank, right? Yeah. So Noonvale is in the forest to the west. They ended up so far north that they have to make their way south, and that is probably why they don't know their way around. That's mm-hmm. yeah, it. Yeah, I thought I thought Noonvale was to the north of Marshank. Yeah, it's weird. Brome leads Wolpe
0: over to the wall of the slave compound, saying they didn't need to stick around to hear the fight. No, what Wolpe needed was sleep. He pitches his voice <laughs> to Carrie, and a wary Wolpe agrees with him, slipping into the suggested sleep. And you know what? I take it back. Brome is actually really smart, and I can see why he was getting annoyed at being treated like a little kid. He's intelligent. Yep. He's like, he's not an adult, and he maybe not even is like a full teenager yet. But he's close enough and smart enough that he's like, I can do more than they are allowing me to do. Yeah, it's still stupid what he did, but I can appreciate why he did it more.
1: Yeah, so it was it was very risky, and there's we it comes up a little bit later. It was a very risky thing to do that he had no idea if it would actually work out. He just kind of had to like you know believe that it would. (laughs) Yep,
0: Kayla. Remember, Kayla is an otter, overhears, and a quick peek over the wall and a wink from Brome helps him catch on. Aided by a mouse, the pair drop a sandbag on Wolp and knock him out cold.
1: Like, Wolp is, like, half asleep. Uh, Brome has, like, pulled his hat off so that Kayla can see that it's him. Wolp is like, without your hat, you kind of look like a mouse sandbag. Yeah, like, literal, like, theater <laughs> gag sandbag. It's so good. It is it is a very funny moment like with the 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 escaping slaves plot line, right? Mm-hmm. Which is ostensibly like the B plot. Like it feels weird to call this the B plot and call Badrang and Clog the C plot because the space that both of those plots take up is very similar, but in terms of the goals of the book, Badrang and Clog are the C plot, right? Ostensibly, uh, yeah. But like, the way that the 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 comedy in in the B plot is very good. Uh, it doesn't stick around too long, and it allows itself to be serious when it needs to be, uh, especially because we have a hair involved in the B plot, um, which I think previous books have kind of suffered a little bit with, like, the comedy to ser- serious ratio when it comes to, like, the B-plot when hairs are involved. Yeah. I think we lucked out because there's only one hair. Thankfully. And he's actually tolerable <laughs> because he's the only hair. <laughs> the hair you like. That one hair that I like, yeah. So, the, the exception <laughs> to the rule. <laughs>
0: Kayla asks why Brom had snuck back in, and he says it's to rescue the rest. He thought Kayla had escaped, but the otter had refused to leave the old and babies behind. Brom props up Wolpe's head on the sandbag and proceeds to whisper his plan to Kayla to get them out,
1: all out. I Honestly, I'm glad that they didn't kill Wolpe. Yeah, he's had a bad and they just, day. Yeah, they just think like, he, he's injured already. They just knocked him out. He'll, he'll be fine. He'll, he'll be sore and confused. It's but just a concussion. he should be fine. Probably a concussion, which means him sleeping is not going to be good. But, you know, he's fine. Yeah. It's fine. He's fine.
0: With Bad Ring in his longhouse, we see him poisoning some blackberry grog. He tells Garad a plan to poison clog. With clog, we see him watching a Marx rat named Oilback throw a knife into some driftwood. He pulls him closer to whisper a plan about Badrang. Three schemes are planned okay. at the same time. Two to kill and one to live.
1: So some of the stuff with between Clog and Badrang, and I named the wrong character here, but in my notes because I was like half asleep when I was reading this part, but the battle of wits between Clog and Badrang has a very like Wesley and Vizini vibe. Like when they're, you know, doing the Battle of Wits on the Hill. Mm-hmm about the poison mm-hmm. um but instead of you know one of them actually being particularly smarter than the other they're both very like even ground on this um but like it has that similar kind of vibe like the back and forth of like uh Vizzini being like that's what you want me to think and Wesley being like well, well what if I uh, made myself immune to the poison mm-hmm. And is like you can't have done that like that kind of vibe mm-hmm. You know, the the bluffing, or like um, Wesley and Humperdinck, when Wesley's like bluffing about being able to move to Humperdinck, like saying, like, you know, the to the pain monologue. Mm -hmm. And Humperdinck is like, you're bluffing. And Wesley's like, am I? Or could I move this whole time? And then he gets up. Yeah. And in reality, he was bluffing because like he could get up and that was the only thing he could do. Mm -hmm. He was bluffing anyway, (laughs) bluffing.
0: Brome and Kayla adjust their disguises, now looking like horde beasts. They march openly into the slave compound and order the rest to follow them. Stay silent, don't rush, and let Brome do the talking. Badring orders Garad to sneak the flask to Clog. If Clog's asleep, leave it by his paw. He'll wake up and drink it first thing, not caring what it was. Garad slips into the night. And it's like, for one thing, it's like, why make sure it's something that he can't resist if he's just going to drink it anyway? Anyway. Because it means that he'll drink the whole thing. Yeah. Um, but he's, like, dumped probably enough, with... He's dumped enough, like, wolfsbane in it to kill, like, a bear so.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's wolfsbane and hemlock. And uh, I think the thing is with, like, Clog grabbing something to drink first thing is, like, if he grabs, like, something... Gross like the seaweed ale, it wakes him up. Yeah. But if he grabs something Tate, like and he'll just take a swig of it, but if he grabs something tasty, he'll drink the whole thing. Right? Yeah. Which makes sense. Like the logic is there. Yeah.
0: So but poor Garad doesn't get too far. He's slain by Oilback, who grabs the flask and turns to run when he realizes he hadn't killed Bad Rang. He runs smack bang straight into Brome. Both questioning the other as to what they're doing there. Oilback says he was killing a spy. And Kayla steps up saying they're putting the slaves in the prison pit. They have, they'd have split ways then, except both are walking in the same direction. And it's like, oh no, this yeah, is so because
1: Oilback is trying to get to the gate. This, the the prison pit is on the way to the gate. And so they're walking in the same direction, which is every introvert's worst fucking nightmare. Yep.
0: So it's as awkward as it could be with Oilback commenting on how the 30 slaves would be standing on top of one another. Rome says it'll do them good. He's not there to argue or question orders. And Oilback nods in understanding. Like, they're just, like, playing it be congenial. Like, yeah, we're both clearly horde beasts. It's okay.
1: Yeah, like, Oilback is pretending to be a horde beast. brome and Kayla don't necessarily recognize that he's not. Uh, So they're just like, he hasn't called us out, so we're just gonna go along with this. It's fine. This is fine. We're not panicking. Yeah.
0: <laughs> For once, there's an alert guard, and he calls out a challenge. Why are they putting the slaves in the pit? They'd already had three escapees. Rome snaps back that it's not his business what the tyrant wants, and if the guard had just done their job, there'd be no escapees. So just turn right around and watch the Corsairs like they're supposed to. Some snark from oil back helps as well, and the two finally split ways. Both of them think with relief that that had been a close call. Oilback is unlucky enough, though, to take a swig from the flask of poison grog, though, as
1: he leaves the compound. He's like, phew! Takes a chug. It's like, oh, I can, I, I, let me get a little treat for having survived this. I made it out. Yeah. T- tragedy upon tragedy. <laughs> yeah, like the,
0: the comedy of this was like, this would be like a, a, a comedy play. This little sequence is all oh, very gosh. excellent, and I would like to say... It- if, if the rest of the book was written like this, I can, I can definitely understand reading sequences like this. I can understand why this book is so many people's favorite book. There's really yeah. good sequences written in here when Brian is not falling back on his weird, weird story stalling techniques.
1: Yeah. This is the vibe of this entire like scene, the way it wove into it, into itself. It's got a very noises off vibe. I don't know if you know that play. Um, but Noises Off is a, is a play about a bunch of people like in a house and there's like a lot of doors and there's just so much happening and it's just, it is a comedy of errors in the best way. Uh, because it's not a comedy of errors the way that like, um, uh, like the, uh, body gag comedians can be. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a comedy of errors with like the way that people are interacting with each other, misunderstanding and lying. Mm-hmm. It's so fucking funny. I love that production. I have the the script as a book. It's so fucking funny. They get the
0: slaves into the pit. <laughs> Kayla has to silence a grumpy old mousewife when she complains. I don't know why Brian continues to want to put in characters who are like, I'm in a life-to-situation. I'm going to complain. Uh, I guess it's- It's a, weird. It's like a survival she... thing, I guess. Like a, a Your brain can't handle it, so it defaults to something it can do, which is complaining. I guess- um, she felt very out of place. She does, and she continues to feel out of place. Brome is able to find Grum's tunnel and goes through first. They start the safes through, and it's tight and uncomfortable. Further bad luck hits when Brome realizes the tunnel has collapsed towards the end. They are trapped. F's in chat. <laughs> Back from a claustrophobic panic to a choking panic, uh... With the rescue of the Warden, the four friends fight viciously to get the many reptilian attackers off the heron. Rose calls out for Grum to make a fire. Because they can't see anything. All they can do is feel like what feels like a horde of reptilian
1: bodies. But once yeah, the they're fire... they basically lashing out blindly. on social media you can follow us on tumblr and reddit at Abbey archives and if you would like to help support this podcast you can find us on Coffee Ko-fi at ko-fi.com forward slash hs enclave this podcast is part of hearthside enclave and some other shows you might like are hope's hearth a solar hope punk actual play podcast and post-apocalyptic news radio a fallout inspired audio drama